Well, it is definitely great to be here with you all. And uh, speaking of a bookish congregation I brought, this is more of a security blanket. This is one of Luther's great works, and it's a book that has uh, January 22nd, 1994 in it, in the front uh, frontispiece. Uh, my senior year of college when I sort of stumbled over Martin Luther at the uh, instigation of an undergraduate advisor uh, in the Religious Studies Department at Stanford University of all places, I became a Calvinist, uh, which is my proof for the uh, providence and sovereignty of God. <laughs> but that's another topic. It's, uh, it's great to be here with you tonight. Uh, Luther is a great topic. He is an entertaining topic. He's an entertaining person. He's fun to talk about. He's fun to listen to. Um, we're here to, uh, to listen to the, the ramblings of a drunken German, as he's been called. Uh, a wild pig who is loosed in uh, Christ's vineyard, that is the church. And if we have a little time remaining after that, we'll also talk about Martin Luther and Protestant Reformation. I'm not German. I'm not drunk. I'm not a Lutheran. Uh, but as a Protestant, I, I proudly place myself in the broad tradition which uh, Luther somewhat unintentionally uh, started uh, by lighting the match that lit a powder keg. What are we doing here tonight? Uh, It's great to see this room full of people. Um, And as a historian, I think it's fascinating that you can gather a decent crowd on the night that also happens to be the first night in the World Series, but I promised myself I wasn't going to mention that as a a Los Angeles native. Um, But... To sit here and talk for a little while about the significance of a man who lived 500 years ago. There were a lot of monks in Germany 500 years ago, not to mention all over the world. He wasn't a pope or a king. His father was a farmer. And uh, because he didn't inherit any land, he had to go work in the mines. And he became a relatively prosperous miner. And he wanted a better life for his son. So we are here to acknowledge the lasting significance of this individual man, Martin Luther. Um, And I hope that some of us here, I know that we've invited a broad group to be here, and as as Mike helpfully said, that in our conversation we can have a a good respect for one another. But I, I desperately hope that there are some folks from outside of the Christian faith here with us tonight. Perhaps uh, some Muslims or Jews or atheists. And, and it's not only because I really do want you all to see the glories of Luther and to, to you know, come into the fold and to jump on the Luther bandwagon, if only for another couple weeks. Um, but it's actually because it'll make my job a lot easier. Recent surveys tell us that about uh, 70% of Jews uh, know that Martin Luther is the person whose writings and actions kicked off the Protestant Reformation. About 68% of atheists and agnostics know this. 60% of Mormons. Um, But less than half of Protestants know and associate the name of Martin Luther with the Protestant Reformation and the Protestant faith. Um, So there's a lot of relevance to his teaching, to his actions, uh, and to his thought. I want to ask a few more questions before we get started here in earnest. Is anyone here 34 years old? And if you're a young lady, you don't have to raise your hand. You can just sort of nod. Um, no 34-year-olds. 32, 35, somewhere in there. All right, we got someone. So you, right now, are about the age that Martin Luther was in 1517. 
Martin Luther uh, was born in uh, 1483. And so at the time of the 95 Theses and the, the, uh, the church door in Wittenberg, he was 34 years old. Um, he, he, he lit the match that started the Protestant Reformation. I mean, what have you accomplished in your life, right? You know, um, I'm a little bit older than he was. What have I accomplished with my life? It's amazing what he was able to do at such a young age. Uh, 1983 was a good year. Uh, the Redskins won the Super Bowl. I don't know if anyone here remembers that. Baltimore won the World Series. Talk about a great year for D.C. Baltimore sports. Um, but if you were born in 1983, and maybe you're a few years before or after that. If you were born in 1983, think back to what you were doing in the year 2005. It's not so long ago, 12 years ago, a lot of political junkies here, so that's like three presidential administrations back. Um, what was going on in 2005? What I wanna look at tonight is how Luther's life radically changed from 2005, rather, 1505, the whole 500 year thing's got me a little confused. From 1505 to 1517. I wanna look at this uh, 12 year period and use it as something of an outline for our lecture tonight. During this time, during this 12 year period, uh, Luther had three crisis critical turning points in his life. Uh, the first was in 1505, the next was in 1510, and the next was in 1515. Uh, Speaker R.C. Sproul says that Luther was very kind to us. He spaced these at five-year intervals, so they're easy to remember. 1505, 1510, and 1515. And we can trace this sort of outline of these three critical events in Luther's life to introduce us to the man that Luther was in 1505. And the moment in which he came on the scene, 1510 tells us a lot about that moment, what happened to Luther there. And in 1515, the man in the moment comes upon a particular message. Now, you can't really stop short of 1517 and the anniversary we're actually celebrating here. So we'll conclude by looking at how this message was really the, the engine behind the movement that began after that, the movement in 1517 and then consequent to that, the famous movement moment of uh, Luther at the Council of Worms where he said, here I stand, or purportedly said, uh, here I stand. So first, let's, let's talk about what happened to Martin Luther in 1505. Uh, the man, Martin Luther in 1505. Now, when I was Luther's age in 1505, a little bit earlier than 19 or 20, 2005, uh, when I was 21 years old, which is how old Luther was at that time, 21, 22, a college student. Uh, he was uh, a brilliant law student, actually, a student of law. And he had excelled. As I said, his father had prospered. He actually ran and managed a few mines. So he wanted Luther to be educated, not to work with his hands, but to work with his mind. He wanted him to be prosperous. He wanted him to care for Hans, father, and his wife, uh, Marguerite. Uh, in their old age, and so he sent him to become a lawyer. And as Luther was walking back from university, actually walking back from a visit with his parents to return to university, he had a near-death experience. When I was 21 years old, I had a near-death experience, and, and thankfully at the time I didn't think it was that close. 
but I was traveling too. I was an undergraduate with some of, of my roommates and buddies. Uh, we were studying abroad actually, and I was in this old rental car flying over the Scottish Highlands, up and down over hill and dale, and it had snowed and it had hailed, and I came up over this hillside, and the road took this brutal downhill hairpin turn to the right. And I slammed on the brakes and the car locked up its wheels and I slammed into one of those, you know, steel guardrails and crashed into it and skidded down this hillside. Fortunately, it held. And as I climbed back up the hill after my heart stopped beating, I looked over the hillside and it was this cliff that went down about 200 feet to a roaring river full of rapids. And me and my two friends, uh, thank God that we were still alive. But if you've ever been there, and since I know a handful of our guests tonight, I know that some of you have been there. You've been in a horrible auto accident. Uh, you've had a terrible disease. If you've ever been there, it's, it's a horrifying feeling. And it kind of reorients your whole life. And that's what happened to Luther at the age of 22. He was returning to university from his visit with his parents. And he is... Uh, overtaken by a horrible thunderstorm. Now, in our day, uh, you know, we get Twitter alerts or our computer, our phone apps warn us of impending severe weather. But Luther, with no understanding of electricity or lightning or anything, all of a sudden is in this field on this roadway and there are explosions going off all around him. And a lightning bolt hits close enough to him, uh, sometimes this story is told as though he's on horseback, but he was probably on foot, that it knocks him to his feet, knocks him off his feet. And he lands on his back or on his front, we don't really know. And he cries out, Saint Anne, help me, and I will become a monk. So that, in very many profound ways, is where the story of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation begins. Needless to say, uh, my wife and daughter are here uh, tonight when I hit the guardrail that day 20-some-odd years ago. Um, I didn't become a monk. I didn't pray to a saint. I didn't make a vow. And I trust that for most of you sitting here today as well, uh, when something terrifying has taken place in your life, um, maybe it hasn't quite as radically altered your course as that. Luther... Um, made this vow to St. Anne. Uh, and I want to look at that part of, of his vow. Why does he make a vow to St. Anne? Um, Luther's often described as a very early sort of proto-modern person, a modern European. His sense of conscience, his sense of individual uh, finding his way by reading the Word of God. Um, but it's very helpful for us to realize that, that Luther is in many ways a typical, and, in any, and even more than that, an, an archetypical medieval man. Um, he cries out to St. Anne because she is the patron saint of minors. And his family was very pious. His father had prayed with him at his bedside every night as a child. And she had prayed to St. Anne. And it was a mark of medieval piety that Luther prays not to God, but to a saint and a patron saint. She was his intercessor. Because Luther had been trained that God was to be feared. Luther had a great fear of God, an abiding fear of God. And this fear of God, which Luther experienced deep down in his soul, was a feature, not a bug, of medieval spirituality. The fear of God was, was pursued by preachers and teachers and artists. 
And thus, the importance of a patron, one taken from among your people who knew your craft or your trade or your nationality. And St. Anne is the mother of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, the mother of Jesus. Um, she was very close within the Holy Family. Surely, St. Anne could whisper in the ear of her daughter, who would whisper in the ear of her son, who would be right there at the side of the Most High. God had no reason to look kindly on Luther's plea for help. Perhaps he would hear St. Anne. Perhaps the offerings and masses that his father had endowed as a good minor in the uh, respect and the adoration of St. Anne would have some effect and would spare his life. Luther feared his life. Well, if the church and culture were designed to instill the fear of God in a young man, Luther was particularly susceptible to this. There is a, a great lecture uh, similar to this lecture, which summarizes Luther's background. It's far better than what you're going to hear tonight, unfortunately, by a great teacher named R.C. Sproul. And it's a chapter from a book he wrote as well called The Holiness of God. Um, that lecture is called The Insanity of Luther. There have actually been a number of scholars in the 20th century that have looked back and said, Luther's anxiety... Luther's depression, his fear of God, is clinically insane. Luther was a rigorist. He took everything seriously. He took the word of God at face value. He didn't cut corners. He didn't think God graded on a curve. For Luther, there was no comfort, no hope, no certainty in the religion of his childhood. I think before we judge Luther too harshly, um, for being depressed, we need to remember that uh, depression is a very commonly treated ailment in our culture today. Uh, people who don't treat depression, and we should be grateful indeed that we are able to treat chemical imbalances of the mind uh, with chemicals when it's appropriate and medically so. Uh, but a lot of people self-medicate, as we know with alcohol and other drugs. Maybe Luther wasn't insane. Maybe he put a finger on an essential aspect of our fallen human condition. If you struggle with depression, listen to Luther. There's no shame in this. Maybe, just maybe, the gospel with Lu which Luther discovered can be of some help and some assistance. So that's why he prayed to St. Anne. He was terrified. But why did he vow to become a monk? In the midst of a terrifying world, the church offered certain recourse, certain comfort. They offered the sacraments of the church, pilgrimages, indulgences. We'll say a word more about that in a moment. The intercession of the saints, as Luther cried out. But the surest path to calming an, an anxious conscience was the monastery. None was effective as the monastic life. If you want certainty in your spiritual life, the way and the place you would find it is in a cloister. Aquinas, famous teacher of the church, said that taking the monastic cowl was like a second baptism. It restored your innocence. You could wash the slate clean if you entered the monastery. Some believed that the last judgment was just about to come uh, once upon a time and that Jesus had spared the blowing of the final trumpet for the sake of the Cistercian order, one of the monastic orders of the Middle Ages. They need to still prepare themselves a little more. One of the angels had whispered to him, and so he had delayed. So Luther, thinking that his life was forfeit, 
um, decides at that point, the only security I can have in the face of this terror, the terror of death, is as a monk. And this was not an easy decision. As is subsequently clear, he probably already knew it. Most of us at age 21 or 22 know what our dads expect of us. Most of us know what we can do to make them happy. Most of us know what career paths can make them a little less than happy. And Luther's father was not pleased one bit with his decision to enter the monastery. But within uh, two weeks, Luther had prepared his affairs. He'd said farewell to his classmates. And in the same university town where he was studying Erfurt, he had joined the Augustinian Monastery. Again, this is reflective of Luther and the man. The Augustinians were uh, not only a, a learned order, but they were perhaps in the most rigorous of all the monastic orders. So, to conclude, 1505, the first crisis in Luther's life. A vow which reveals uh, Luther's pursuit of the most thorough, the most rigorous, and the most consistent application of every tool of medieval spirituality to address the discomfort of his soul, to quiet his anguish. And so, one of the ironies here is that Luther, who will probably do more than any other single individual in the history of the church to dismantle medieval religion, uh, was first, and his path to that dismantling, pursued it as vigorously and as aggressively as perhaps anyone ever has. Uh, was Luther a good monk? Some would say that he was too good of a monk. He himself said, I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils. So the monks had a serious number of appointed prayers every day. Uh, they would punish themselves. Luther engaged in self-flagellation. He would sleep without clothing on, so he would freeze. Because that suffering, he felt, was removing some of the temporal punishment for his sins, which he still owed back to God. Uh, there was a daily confession, and every monk had an assigned father confessor. And one of the often told stories of Luther is that this five or ten minute exchange of a prayer of confession and contrition, brief listing of some, you know, occasional sins, how much trouble can you get in in a monastery, um, for Luther would stretch on and on and on. Well, in that prayer, I wasn't quite sincere when I said that. And in that prayer, I didn't really mean it. And I looked at, you know, uh, Brother Joe's leg of lamb and I, I lusted after that. And he would go on for hours with a daily confession. And finally his confessor said, Luther, just go away. Go away. Luther was imbibing the teachings of Augustine, St. Augustine, who lived in the 4th and early 5th century of the church. And Augustine taught that sin was within you. Sin wasn't something outside of you, it wasn't external acts, it wasn't something you consumed. So what Jesus teaches in Mark chapter 7. But sin came out of a, a state of sin, a sin nature that is within all of us. And Luther very much, uh, that resonated with what he experienced. Sometimes I sin because I want to sin. That's what Augustine had said about stealing the pears from the pear tree. I wasn't hungry. I didn't want the fruit. I just wanted to sin. 
And when Luther, at the climax of his inauguration as a monk, a couple years in, goes to say his first Mass, he was overcome with terror at the thought of holding what he believed to, to be the body and blood of God, of Christ. And he froze. He started trembling. Everyone looked around. And his father, who after two years had finally reconciled to the idea of his son being a monk, had come and had brought guests to observe the first Mass of Luther, this great moment. His father is just shaking his head, saying, you think you're divinely called to this? And Luther asks him after the, after the Mass, he says, why were you so contrary? Perhaps even now, why are you still angry about being a monk? This life is so quiet, it's so godly. And Hans, his father, said, You're some great Bible scholar, aren't you, Martin? What about honor your father and mother? Ouch. And here you have left me and your dear mother to look after ourselves in our old age. And Luther replied, But I can do you more good by my prayers than if I had stayed in the world. And I've been called by God. But his father said, God grant it was not an apparition of the devil. There was that constant sense of doubt, even coming from his father. Was this really God who had called him to this life? Luther excels in his studies. He advances even as he had in the study of law. And that brings us to 1510. Every five years, very easy to remember. What were you doing in 15, 2010? It wasn't that long ago, seven years ago. 1510. And Luther is selected by the leaders of his monastic order to travel to Rome. There's some business for the Augustinian monks and they need to go to Rome to a meeting. This is the second great crisis and turning point for Luther. Now this was an, ex an incredibly exciting opportunity for Luther to understand why I need to take a brief detour and do just a little bit of theological, I won't call it heavy lifting, moderate lifting here. Luther, still troubled in his soul, thought that he could attain at the last place, the comfort that the church offered through the intercession and the merits of the saints. Uh, we need to understand here that at this moment in church history, and this is where the man Luther meets a particular moment, at this moment in church history, the merits of the saints played an incredibly important life of virtually everyone in the church. Now, sins in the medieval Roman Catholic Church were very carefully, individually accounted for and punished. It was said that a, a mortal sin would have seven years of punishment related to it at, at certain points uh, during the medieval church. And when you were forgiven for a sin, your guilt was taken away, the eternal punishment was taken away, but there was still, in this schema, a temporal punishment, which you had to pay. Now, we can think of how this might make a certain kind of a sense. If, if I sin against my brother Mike here and punch him in the face, I can say, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry, and walk away. Well, that's not true. I have to repent. I have to make restitution. I have to make things right. And in the same way, the church said, you will have full forgiveness of your sins when you demonstrate by your actions, when you've actually paid and made satisfaction for what you have done wrong. There is a temporal satisfaction that everyone must make, either in this life or in the life to come. So in the sacrament of confession, and I took my first holy confession in second grade, so I was about eight years old. Um, there's a whole other story there. I actually faked my first holy confession, and I displeased my father very much, who was not a Christian man, but was forced to come to church to see and, and paddled me for it on the, on the fanny. My first holy confession, I, they gave me a makeup. 
I was raised a Catholic, so this all is, is very vibrant to me. Um, I was told to confess my sins, which I did, and say a prayer of contrition to say that I was sorry for my sins. So there was the ingredient of confession and contrition. And then I was told to go and make penance, to say some Hail Marys, to say some prayers. Penance in the medieval sacrament of confession could be uh, the giving of alms. It could be a particular action that would be a satisfaction that would complete the process of forgiveness that wasn't done until this happened. Now, if you died with some of this temporal punishment unpaid, what would happen? It was still clinging to you. You had to pay the debt. And the solution to this that the church had developed over a thousand years or more was purgatory, an intermediate phase during which your sins would be purged from you. Sins that you hadn't been able to work off sufficiently during your life would be worked off uh, for you in purgatory. Now, that's the bad news. The church kept very careful track of every last sin and has a lot of reason for doing so. The Word of God speaks in a similar vein. But the good news is that the church had a storehouse of satisfaction. It had the merits of Jesus Christ on the cross, which were infinite in value. And to the merits of Christ were also added the merits of some of the saints, who in addition to being so holy, this includes Mary, the mother of Jesus, other apostles, Peter and Paul, and other key saints, in addition to being so holy, had done extra works. Those who had died a death of martyrdom. Everyone doesn't have to die a martyr, but if you died a death of martyrdom, you had gone above and beyond the call. You had extra satisfaction extra good works and merit. And that went into the treasury of merit along with the merits of Christ. And the Pope would share these merits with you. He held the keys of the kingdom of Christ, Matthew 16, and and he could release these merits. This was called the doctrine of indulgences. I never really knew where this word came from until preparing for this talk. You know when a parent sometimes is a little indulgent with their child? That kid should really be going to bed by now, but I'm going to be indulgent and let him watch the first game of the World Series. Or that kid should really uh, be uh, serving his week of detention, but I'm just going to make him pay five days. I have a little extra grace in my heart. Well, our Heavenly Father in Heaven does that as well. And he does it through his minister, uh, the Pope in Rome. And so the Pope could give a little bit of leeway on the temporal punishments for sins that needed to be paid. One of the key areas where this first happened was during the Crusades. Talk about controversial topics in 2017, right? But during the Crusades, all these men were off on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to recapture Jerusalem. They didn't have time to stop on the way to do confession and to make penance. They had to go to Jerusalem. In fact, going to Jerusalem was better than penance that any priest could assign them in a confessional. And so the Pope said, if you go on a crusade, I will give you an indulgence. You won't have to pay any of the temporal punishment for all your sins. These indulgences came over time to be tied to visiting holy sites and to uh, praying before, coming into the presence of, to revering the bones of holy saints and martyrs. Um, It's kind of ironic, Wittenberg, where Luther nailed the theses in the door, 
uh, Wittenberg was uh, at a university and it had a, a was trying to be built up by the, the ruler of that place, Frederick the Wise. And he was actually collecting these medieval relics, the bones of the saints. And uh, he built a collection there up to 19,103 relics. Now, each one of these relics was assigned a certain value, depending on whether it was the head of a saint, or maybe a pinky toe bone, or what portion of the anatomy it was. And so there was a total approximate value. If you would revere all of these relics in Wittenberg, 19,103 bones, that would take a long time, but you could do it. It would earn you 1,902,202 years and 270 days out of purgatory. Now, a new understanding of this had arisen right before Luther came along. That these indulgences could be applied to people who had already died. So not only could you get an indulgence for yourself, but if your uncle was deceased and you were pretty sure that your uncle was a nasty man and was spending maybe a couple million years in purgatory, you could get him out scot-free with one plenary comprehensive indulgence. And Rome was the place to be. Rome had all of the indulgences. So when Luther heard that he got to take a business trip to Rome, it was about a hundred days walk. It was a long way, it was a thousand miles. Um, when he learned that he could take a business trip to Rome, he jumped for joy. Finally, I can soothe my conscience. I can go to every chapel in the holiest city on the whole earth, right there next to Jerusalem as another holy place to observe uh, these relics, to gain indulgences. And his only sorrow as he set off for Rome was that his mother and father were still alive because he couldn't get them an indulgence out of purgatory until they died. But he could still get an indulgence for his grandfather. And so that was the aim uh, with which he went. Now in 1510, Luther is a medieval monk. He is committed to this system. His conscience is troubled. But he goes to Rome and he goes to every chapel. He goes to every relic he can. He only has 30 days there. And Rome is a crisis for Luther because he becomes incredibly disillusioned. I don't know if you've ever known anyone who came to Washington, D.C. They were going to change the world. Maybe they went to work as an intern for a congressman. Um, maybe they had a political appointment. You know, I'm sure you've never known anyone like this, right? And you can get a little disillusioned when you get to Washington, D.C. Because, uh, as some people are fond of saying, sometimes it's a bit of a swamp. And sometimes you see that out at the grassroots of, of politics on the right and left, there's a lot of zeal and there's a lot of fervor and there's a lot of purity. And then you get to D.C. and you see how the sausage is made. Well, this was Luther's experience when he got to Rome. He went to a, a, a primate, a, a leader over his monastic order, the Augustinian monks, and he went to make a confession. If I can make a confession to a really good confessor, boy, this will really purify my soul. And he was disappointed. He was disappointed by the, quote, ignorance, frivolity, and the levity of the Italian priests. They knew that they were at the center of a great economy of indulgences, and they had a constant flow of pilgrims, and it got to be a little bit old hat for them. The priests who were saying mass on behalf of the dead to, again, gain indulgences for dead people, were doing six or seven masses in the time. They were like those people reading the fine print on the radio ads. And when Luther was saying his mass, they said, 
Get a move on, get a move on. Pasa, 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 hurry up. Stupid German. What are you doing? We have to get this chapel back in service. Got to turn this table. And this was a time of notorious immorality in the papacy. The Borgia Popes, the Medici, uh, priests and monastics uh, frequented the Roman district of Ilfane. And Luther's climax of his time in Rome came at the Scala Sancta. The Scala Sancta, still in Rome, I visited there um, a few years ago, um, is in St. John the Lateran. And the Scala Sancta, the Holy Steps, are the stairs from Pilate's temple, reputedly, the stairs from Pilate's temple in Jerusalem that had been brought back to Rome by Helena, the sainted mother of the Emperor Constantine. And the Scala Sancta rose up 23 steps, and at the top of the Scala Sancta was the Sancta Sanctorum. I just love the opportunity to throw a little Latin around, right? The Holy of Holies. And the Sancta Sanctorum is the same expression we find in the Old Testament Bible to describe the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle, of the temple, where the high priest would go only one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And in Rome to this day, there is a Sancta Sanctorum. And it is the Holy of Holies because this was the private chapel of the popes going back to the 7th and 8th century. And in it were the most prized possessions, the heads of Peter and Paul, the most prized relics of the church were kept in a box in the Sancta Sanctorum. And the idea was that if you went up the stairs of the Sancta Sanctorum on your knees and stopped at every step of the stairs, and by the way, the, the stairs are covered with wood to protect them now, but there are little windows, very scuffed and dirty, but very little windows where you can look through the wood on certain steps, because those are the windows where you see the little marks where Jesus' blood is still on the holy steps. You're that close to the very blood of Christ from the scourging that he received before he was crucified. You go up on your hands and knees and you say an Our Father at every step. And you get to the top and you receive there a plenary indulgence for your Aunt May, Uncle Bob, anyone else. You can only do it one day a year and one other day of your choosing. So you can't do it every day. You can't do it a hundred times a day. Luther went to the Scala Sancta, and he records, there are a lot of different stories about what happened when Luther got to the Scala Sancta. Some people say that he didn't make it all the way up. Some people say that he threw up his hands in disgust because he thought, are all these external efforts at making myself holy, of doing these acts, are all these things going to change my conscience? Are they going to change my standing before God? But Luther says that when he got to the top, he said, and he did get to the top, who knows if it's true? Who knows if it's true? I don't know if you've ever had a friend who struggled with anxiety or depression, but you can imagine. It's not clear what he's talking about, by the way. Who knows if it's true that these are really the steps? Who knows if it's true that I had in my soul and my deepest heart the true repentance that is required to get the full plenary indulgence. Maybe I'm just getting a partial indulgence. Who knows if it's true if there's a treasury of merit that the Pope can unlock for me. When he got back to Germany on one of his two-hour-long interviews with his father confessor in the monastery, his confessor said, Luther, do you love God? 
Bottom line, do you love God? Luther said, love God? Do I love God? I can't love God. I hate Him. He asks more and more and more of me. And so Luther had incredible disillusionment when he went to Rome. He was shaken to his very soul. And for, for many years, all through the medieval church, people had been complaining about the, the ill morality of the popes and, and the crises of confidence in the Roman church. But, but Luther experienced it firsthand. And for Luther, it was connected to a deep theological problem that he was wrestling down. It wasn't floating out as a criticism of an illegitimate of an institution. It was a theological issue. And this is what turns us from 1505 when he entered the monastery to 1510 when he went to Rome to 1515. Ten short years. A lot can happen in a decade. But ten short years. Think of what you've been through this last ten years. Luther, in his brilliance, became a doctor of theology. And in 1550, or shortly after his return, 1511, he starts lecturing in a new town at Wittenberg. He had been a local monk previous to that, but now he is a professor of theology lecturing on the Bible. And he lectures first through the book of Psalms, and then the book of Romans, and then the book of Hebrews over a period of about four years, five years. And the, the story of the Reformation really comes to a crux right here because the story of the Reformation is the story of the rediscovery of Scripture in the message of the Bible. Luther was not alone in this. In 1516, just a year after this, uh, Erasmus, a famous uh, Renaissance humanist, would publish uh, the Greek New Testament. For a thousand years, the Bible had been read in an old Latin translation. It hadn't been read at all by the laity and by most priests. Many parish priests were illiterate. But... It had been read in fragments, in sentences, line here, a line there, in biblical commentaries. Very few people, even theologians, studied the text of Scripture itself. But the Renaissance that flowered in the 14th and 15th century went back to the discovery of a number of original texts, original languages, and the study of Greek and Hebrew. Luther was a brilliant linguist. He harvested the fruits of the rediscovery of biblical languages. Jumping ahead a little bit in our story, in, in 1521, Luther will be in hiding. And over a period of 11 weeks, 11 weeks, people, he translated the Greek New Testament into German. He had the New Testament memorized. He could cite it chapter and verse, the whole thing. And so Luther is teaching from the Bible. And first he reads in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Luther reads Christ here on the cross. The theology of the cross is very important for Luther. Don't have time to develop that theme tonight, but if you're able to pick up some of our books. We meet God at Calvary. You have a question about God? Look at the cross. You struggle with your sin, with your assurance? Look to Jesus at Calvary. That's where we see the love of God. And Luther, in all of his troubles, finds Christ on the cross. And he finds Christ forsaken of God. And Luther said, I have been forsaken of God. I have felt that way, but I'm a miserable sinner. I deserve it. What's Christ doing there? Why is he forsaken of God? This was a different Christ than Luther had seen. 
Think of the last judgment in the Sistine Chapel. Christ coming, many uh, medieval woodcuts in this period show Christ with a sword coming out of his mouth. It was a terrifying Christ who was coming back in judgment. Jesus Christ participated in our alienation. Yes, Christ is a judge and will come and judge, but when he comes to judge, he will judge those for whom he suffered and with whom he suffered. Wrath and love of God were both there at the cross, and this really radically rocked Luther. And this theme develops through the Psalms as he sees Christ in the pages of the Old Testament. And then he comes to Romans chapter 1. And this is our sermon text for this Sunday. I'm just going to read this message, Mike. I don't know. You're going to write another sermon? No. Um, and Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 says, as Paul is introducing his, his great epistle, comprehensive statement of his faith to the Roman church, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, and this is the key expression for Luther, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, 30 years later, in 1545, Luther was introducing his collected works. He was a famous author, famous man by this time. And he looked back on this moment and described this tower experience, as it's often called. He was sitting up in a cell in a tower, writing his lecture for his class through Romans. And these are Luther's words, which I think are the best words to turn to here. I had conceived a burning desire to understand what Paul meant in his letter to the Romans. But thus far, there had stood in my way, not the cold blood around my heart, but that one word which is in chapter 1, the justice of God is revealed in it. I hated that word. Here is Luther again, hating God. I hated that word, justice of God, which by the use and custom of all my teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically as referring to the formal or active justice, as they call it, the justice by which God is just and by which he punishes sinners. This is the holiness of God which demands only holy people can stand in his presence and not be consumed. But I, blameless monk that I was, felt that before God I was a sinner with an extremely troubled conscience. I couldn't be sure that God was appeased by my satisfaction. All of those satisfactions I've had. Even after 1517, years after going to Rome, even after the, the, the 95 Thesis, for three more years, Luther continued to live the life of a monk up until 1521-1522. He was committed to saying prayers at ordinary hours during the days. And sometimes he would get a backlog. He would get a couple weeks late. And he would go three or four days in a row doing nothing but saying prayers to catch up. Because if he didn't say the prayers that he had promised to say, he had taken a vow, God would punish him. I couldn't be sure that God was appeased by my satisfaction. I did not love, no, rather I hated the just God who punished sinners. In silence, if I did not blaspheme, then certainly I grumbled. Isn't it enough that we miserable sinners, lost for all eternity because of original sin, are oppressed by every kind of calamity through the Ten Commandments? 
Why does God heap sorrow upon sorrow? Through the gospel as well. It was believed that Jesus came not with a different message than the law, but with a new law, a more rigorous law, a spiritual law that didn't just apply to our actions and our words, but to our hearts and our thoughts. And that's what terrified Luther. I meditated night and day on those words until, at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. Young children, when you read a book, pay attention to the context, it matters. And when you read the Bible, I paid attention to their context. The justice of God is revealed in it, the gospel, as it is written, the just person lives by faith. I began to understand that in this verse, the justice of God is that by which the just person lives by a gift of God, that is, by faith. God gives us His justice. He gives us His righteousness. I began to understand that this verse means that the justice of God is revealed through the gospel, but it is a passive justice, that by which the merciful God justifies us by faith. All at once, I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. The idea of purgatory, the idea of satisfaction, because he fell short of God's righteousness, he realized that God's justice revealed in the gospel wasn't a bar he had to attain, it was a gift he was given. I exalted this sweetest word of mine, the justice of God, with as much love as before I had hated it with hate. When we read God's word, we do indeed see a holy God who judges sinners, but we also see their brothers and sisters, friends, neighbors. We see there this good news that God gives us in the gospel, in His Son, Jesus Christ, what He asks of us in His holy law. He provides for us as a gift that we receive by faith. I found, Luther continues, what I dared not hope for. Luther's dying words was asked by his friend, do you want to die standing firm on Christ and on the doctrine you have taught? And Luther answered emphatically, yes, we are beggars. This is true. Yes, I stand in this justice. Well, three critical events for Luther. He became a monk in 1505. He went to Rome in 1510. And in 1515, he discovered the message. So the man, in the right moment, uh, discovered a message. And what happened October 31st, 1517, what we're celebrating this year, is the beginning of a movement as that message uh, broke free. Um, just a few words about this final movement in Luther's story, because it is the climax that brings us to uh, Reformation Day, each and every year in this 500th uh, year. Talked a little bit about these indulgences that the church would grant for those that went to holy sites. Uh, well, they began uh, to uh, sell uh, these indulgences. An almsgiving that went to a noble cause could also be a way uh, to receive an indulgence. And you could see if uh, giving a glass of cold water, Jesus said, was an act of kindness that he would recognize in his saints when he came in judgment. And so if by extension you paid someone to give a glass of cold water to someone else, 
And in the case of the late 16th century, the, the papacy's coffers in Rome were getting very low. They had funded a number of crusades, and they were trying to build St. Peter's, the great cathedral, which if you have visited Rome, towers over the Vatican now. And St. Peter's, the foundations had been laid, but construction had been halted because they had run out of money. And so the Pope announced that there was an indulgence generally for sale, that he enabled, that he qualified his bishops, as archbishops, to collect in far-flung European countries. And these indulgences could be purchased. The new doctrine recently promulgated that these applied not only to living saints, but also to their departed dead. And so this famous preacher, Johann Tetzel is his name, went about selling these indulgences. He couldn't go to Wittenberg because of the relics that were in Wittenberg. The Frederick the Wise had uh, forced him outside the borders of his territory. But he went around to the neighboring countries. And Luther, who at this time was also a preacher and a pastor in the local university chapel, had a number of people from his congregation take the trip over the border so they could go buy their indulgences in the neighboring towns. This is what Tetzel, the preacher of indulgences, would say. Consider the salvation of your souls and those of your loved ones departed. Listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends beseeching you and saying, Pity us, pity us, we are in dire torment from which you can redeem us for just a little pittance. Do you not wish to? Open your ears. Hear the father saying to his son, the mother to her daughter, We bore you, nourished you, brought you up, left you our fortunes, and you are so cruel and hard that now you are not willing for so little to set us free from purgatory. Will you let us lie here in flames? Will you delay our promised glory? Remember that you are able to release them, the preacher Tetzel said. And there was a jingle that was popularized, I'm sure you've heard it, as soon as the coin and the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. As soon as the payment is made to the offering box, you will gain freedom from purgatory for all your departed loved ones. Now this was, in fact, an abuse of the church's position on indulgences. Indulgences were meant to be joined to a contrite heart. And here, as is often the case when you get salesmen, you know, it was probably multi-level. I'm sure Tetzel had people working under him, and he couldn't go to every village himself. And so people get out there, and they get a little zealous, and the more they bring back, you know, it's kudos on you. A little zealous here, they said, you don't need to do anything. You don't need to be sorry for your sins. You don't need to show the love of Christ. Just put a coin in this offering plate. The saints... Your loved ones will go free. Now Luther is ministering, he's pastoring to people. And he, remember, on his own account, had already passed through the gates of paradise. He was free. He was in glory. And he saw these people whom he preached to in his parish in bondage to the idea that their loved ones were suffering the flames of purgatory. So Luther said... In anger, he did something quite conservative, actually. He said, let's have a theological debate about this. Maybe we could bring about some change. And so the 95 Theses, the reason we're here, on October 31st, All Hallows' Eve, 1517, were posted out in front of the church. There was nothing radical or revolutionary. It was the bulletin board for the university. It's where all the students would have seen it. In point of fact, he took a copy 
uh, of his 95 theses, protesting indulgences and calling for a debate on the subject of how these indulgences were being sold and distributed, he took a copy and sent it to the chief primate over all Germany, the Archbishop of Mainz, Albrecht. And he sent him a letter and he said, Dear Albrecht, I bow before your majesty. You probably, I'm sure you don't know what your preachers of indulgences are saying in your name. If you would just correct some of their errant teachings, here is a discussion I think we should have in your universities. It was written in Latin. It wasn't meant to be universally distributed. And Luther actually said in, in Theses 71, let him be anathema and accursed who denies the apostolic character of the indulgences. Luther actually defended the practice of indulgences. In fact, the 95 Theses don't teach the key doctrines that we tend to associate with Luther and the Reformation. Justification by grace alone through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. They don't teach scripture alone. That would come in the following years. Luther said, papal indulgences should only be preached with caution. Thesis 41. Lest people gain a wrong understanding and think that they are preferable to other good works, those of love. In fact, at the heart of the 95 Theses was a deep medieval piety. Luther wanted people to love God and love their neighbor. The two last theses said, Christians should be exhorted to be zealous to follow Christ, their head, through penalties, deaths, and hells. And 95, let them thus be more confident of entering heaven through many tribulations rather than through a false assurance of peace. So Luther thought that indulgences would make people lazy. And of course they would. That it would tell people that by paying a price, they could avoid the work of picking up their cross and following their Savior. Luther didn't intend to start a revolution or a reformation. He hoped, and all he ever wanted for the next 30 years of his life in ministry, was to have a debate within the church about the proper understanding of these things. Now that would change in the subsequent years as he was condemned by the church and, and in a sense, pushed out of the church. But all he wanted was an honest debate with the leaders of the church, which is why he started this. But some of his students translated those theses from Latin into German that everyone could read. And thanks to Gutenberg and the printing press, which was a novel technology, information technology, uh, those theses were said to be in every village in Germany within two weeks. Within four or five weeks, they were in Spain. They'd spread across Europe. And he struck a nerve. He struck a nerve. Uh, there was a nerve of German resentment towards Italy, taking all the money from the north to the south to build the papacy, which itself was an independent nation state. There was the Renaissance nerve of humanism and going back ad fontes and finding the source of religion and vital faith in Christ in the scriptures. And there was the nerve of the piety which Luther preached. Luther's reform ultimately stands today. This is the bottom line. Why are we here today? Luther's known to us today. His reform is known to us today because it wasn't about Luther. Because the message he brought was the message of the Word of God, which alone stands through the ages. One final scene demonstrates the message of salvation by faith alone. Now, Luther was condemned three years later in 1520. In 1521, he was finally brought before a tribunal to try him. And he was told to recant of all of his works. 
And Luther's often thought of as a bombastic fellow, as a proud fellow. Here he is toppling the Pope. But that's really Luther after some time later. At this early stage, when he's told to recant all his work, sitting on a table, he's standing before the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. And Luther says, when asked, do you defend all these or do you care to reject them? He says, this matter, this question touches on God and his word. This affects the salvation of souls. And of this Christ has said, he who denies me before men, him I will deny before my father. To say too little or too much would be dangerous. Give me time to think it over. I want a day. And they say, what? You came to a trial to defend your works and you're not prepared to answer? You had months. And Luther goes. And they give him 24 hours and he comes back the next day. And we have the prayer he prayed that night in his cell. He recorded it as it was, uh, it's been called by some people, Luther's own private Gethsemane. Oh God, almighty God, how dreadful is the world. How small is my faith. Oh, the weakness of my flesh. If I'm to depend upon any strength of this world, oh God, help me. You alone, you can do this, oh God. And though the world should be thronged with devils, this body, which is the work of thy hand, should be cast forth, trodden underfoot, cut in pieces. Through this prayer, he comes to the point of saying, yes, I have your own word to assure me of this truth. My soul belongs to you, and I will abide with you forever. That's the assurance that Luther has. He thinks he's going to the stake. And that's his prayer. Amen. O God, send help. Amen. And so he goes the next day and says these words, Since then, Your Majesty and Your Lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Holy Scripture or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor Kansas alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. Later printings added at the end, Here I stand. I can do no other first record doesn't have that. Luther may not and probably did not say it. And yet it summarizes his speech there. Luther escapes. He could have been burned at the stake right there. He was called for that to happen, but he fled. Uh, he'd live another 25 years. But that's the moment. Luther was not alone, but the moment that crystallized a movement and that message, which wasn't grounded on Luther's confidence, but gave Luther the confidence to stand there on that day. Uh, he didn't stand alone. He had forerunners before him, Jan Huss and Wycliffe, others, many who came after him, who labored alongside of him. And so the Reformation is a very broad movement, and I just want to flag five things, and I, and I want to say I haven't focused on the impact of the Reformation today because I believe its lasting impact is spiritual um, in our hearts. But he remade the Western Church. You may bewail the division in the church, and I do. The lack of unity in Christendom is a, is a tragedy. Uh, but there's a lot of creative energy and power that came as a result of that as well. Where Luther fled to the monastery, we've had generations of great men um, going into the world 
to do remarkable, transformative things, missionaries and servants and other capacities. Luther unleashed the scriptures. We looked at that briefly. That was a big movement. He translated them into German. Uh, Rome, which outlawed the lay reading of scripture in the 16th century and long into the 19th and early 20th century, now fully embraces the freedom of the word of God to take root in men's souls and to be a part of our uh, personal knowledge of God and devotion to Him. That is in large part due to Luther and the Protestant Reformation. He transformed education because a literate laity who knew the faith they believed had to be educated. Huge topic of discussion. He transformed our view towards authority. Now, Luther did not oppose the church's authority. He was not a radical in this regard. He was extremely conservative. But he believed that the church had to exercise its authority under the word of God alone as the ultimate authority. A very important and precise distinction that is often lost in our day in Protestant Catholic discussions. But most importantly, salvation. You or I might have a near-death experience. Tonight, tomorrow, next week. Maybe a death experience. I don't know about you, but I have peace with God because of a gospel that was largely obscured prior to the 16th century. It was extant in many teachers of the church and Augustine and other church fathers, medieval saints, but was unleashed with a brilliance in Luther um, that continues to resonate today. The message of the Bible, the message of Augustine, the message recovered by Luther is a compelling one because it's based on God's Word. That's the source of its lasting impact. We believe in a holy God, a God of justice, but also a God who has shown His love for the world by sending His Son to die in sinner's place. And the work of Christ is complete. We can add nothing to it. We are saved by God's gift alone through faith alone on account of Christ alone. And so tonight, I say goodnight, and when you draw near to death, either soon or later, Remember Luther's words, we are beggars. This is true. But Christ is ever at any moment always near to save. That's our good news today. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Dr. Lee, for that thought-provoking uh, lecture. Friends, in just a moment, we're going to begin our time of Q&A. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Dr. Lee and I have selected a few books on the topic of the Reformation we felt were significant uh, and helpful. Let me just mention two books that I selected. Uh, and John, can I ask you to pass them out a long way, brother? Um, first, uh, the first book I selected uh, as an additional resource to give away tonight is entitled Here I Stand, A Life of Martin Luther by Roland Bainton. While I recognize that there have been more recently published biographies of Martin Luther available in print, the fact remains that Roland Bainton's biography is, uh, of Luther is a classic work. Uh, Bainton does a wonderful job retelling the thrilling story of Luther's life. And I have no doubt you will be educated and enlightened in reading Bainton's work. So I'm going to hand them to John. He's just going to walk down the aisle. If you want one, raise your hand uh, and he'll pass one along. If you don't, if all one, two, three, four, five are not taken. He's just going to put them on the back table, and anybody who wants them can pick one up. Uh, the second book that I have selected for tonight uh, is The Unquenchable Flames, The Unquenchable Flame by Michael Reeves. Um, 
Michael Reeves wrote that booklet that many of you received on your way in. Um, what I appreciate in particular about this book is that Michael Reeves, um, he takes kind of a global perspective on the Reformation. He does some brief biographical work while at the same time honing in on some of the major concerns of Luther uh, and the other reformers across Europe. Reeves demonstrates in this uh, book how their main, how the reformers' main concerns are relevant today as they were in the Reformation era. He is kind to Baptists, not lumping us in with the Anabaptists, and as a bonus, he is witty. So I'm going to do the same thing with John. Uh, thanks, brother. Doc, uh, Dr. Lee, you've also selected a couple of books down here. Yeah, that'll teach you not to sit in the front row, huh? I mean, you, know, you show up late, you better come sit in the front of church. That's the basic message we have for you tonight. Um, now, this, uh, both of my books are, are by uh, a man who is a teacher of mine and a friend of mine. His name is W. Robert Godfrey, and the first one is called Reformation Sketches, Insights into Luther, Calvin, and the Confessions. And uh, the reason I selected both of these books is because, uh, to be perfectly honest, virtually the vast majority of Protestants in North America experience Luther and know Luther and the Lutheran Reformation through Calvin and through the broader Reformed tradition. Um, the Reformation was a very broad, and as Mike already mentioned, the Baptist tradition had a lot of roots that came out of it. Um, and so it was a broad flowering. And uh, in this book, he has some very nice, short essays and articles, first focusing on Luther and about six on Luther. Then he talks a little bit about Calvin, who came about 30 years after uh, Luther's work, knew Luther, loved him, labored, and followed in his footsteps, but is evidence of how Luther had this lasting, broadening impact all across Europe. And then finally, he talks about the confessions. In this instance, uh, they're reformed confessions of faith, but one of the great 16th century movements was a confessional writing movement where we recorded our faith. And so uh, this captures that insight. If you could start at the back, giving these out, you know, the first shall be last, the last shall be first, um, just to round things out. And, uh, and this one doesn't even really pretend to make any pretense to talk about Luther. This is just a book called John Calvin, Pilgrim and Pastor. Um, again, Calvin was deeply influenced by Luther. Luther's in here 13 times in the index at least. And uh, this book demonstrates that, but also shows the pastoral heart of the Reformation. Luther was a great pastor. He wrote a shorter catechism. Uh, my daughter's 10 years old here. She's memorized much of that in her Lutheran school the last number of years. Um, that is very great summary of the Christian faith. And so uh, this shows uh, Calvin's pastoral heart, which I think is in the image and the mirror of Luther's pastoral heart, and really is, is the great pastoral fruit of the Protestant Reformation. I think, if I'm not mistaken, we have like about a hundred of these at our church. I was going to bring some tonight, but if you show up on Sunday, you'll get, you can take one of these there too. So we give these away as well. So. Okay, friends, if, if you have a question, uh, I believe Joe Hobby has a microphone. He's going to pass that around. Just a, a few quick comments. Uh, and I'm going to throw in two questions to you to start to kick us off. Um, if, you, if you have a question, raise your hand. Dr. Lee will, will call on you. We'll bring a microphone to you. Um, again, please be, be brief. If you would, give Dr. Lee your, your first name. Uh, that would be much appreciated. And then uh, be brief and to the point about your question. Um, remember that not everyone may uh, agree with your assumptions, so be, be mindful as you uh, frame your question. So, so two, two questions to start us off. 
Uh, I don't know about uh, you all, but I was struck by the, the note at the beginning of your talk, Dr. Lee, that uh, only half of Protestants, uh, or less than half of Protestants, know and associate Luther with the Protestant Reformation. Um, so a question bouncing off of that. Uh, one, what, what do Protestants need to relearn from Luther? Uh, and then the second question, so church-oriented, uh, second question more culture-oriented, if I may, for today. Um, what can we learn about the pursuit of honest debate from Luther? Okay, those are two, the two questions. Yep, those right? are the two questions. Um, well, because I want to be brief and let a lot of you talk, uh, that's not just an excuse for a punt. I'm going to, there's a lot to say on the first question, and I'm going to focus on uh, the importance of the church. Um, both the, the uh, Lutheran and the Reformed uh, halves of the Protestant Reformation um, really emphasized was not a rejection of the church and the life of the believer. It was a, a revisioning and a re-understanding of how the church properly functioned under the Word of God. And um, there's a, a, a radio show I used to work for, it's a podcast called The White Horse Inn, and, and they've had a series discussing the ramifications of the 500th anniversary. In a recent broadcast, uh, they said, uh, the fact of the matter is, the Protestant Reformation isn't over, it's not dated, um, it, it lost. The Radical Reformation. Now, the Radical Reformation was, was an extremist sect group that actually had medieval roots going back to the 2nd, 12th, 13th, 14th century in some of the, the, the medieval mystics and radicals who denied the validity of the church entirely. Um, the argument of the White Horse Sin recent broadcast was that the Radical Reformation won. And American religion is not fundamentally reformational in this sense. It's not fundamentally Protestant in that we don't believe in the value of the church. We're all radically reformed, anti-institutional people. When push comes to shove, what matters is what's in my soul and what's in my heart, not what the preacher said from the pulpit on Sunday, not even what the Word of God says. And ultimately, Luther was as terrified of that as any Roman Catholic opponent of Luther was. He said, the Bible in the nose of these radicals becomes a wax nose that you can make into any shape. And so we need to relearn the value of the institutional church. And that's why that one book talked about uh, Luther and Calvin and the Protestant confessions, a confessional faith that has a robust teaching function for the life of the church. Um, what, what Luther can teach us about debate um, is, uh, you know, the, there's a medieval tradition. So the medieval church teaches us about the via negativa. So it's a, it's a way of doing theology where uh, you don't stay what you know, but you state what you don't know, to put it in shorthand. So, so maybe Luther teaches us about good debate via the via negativa. Now, Luther was a fiery soul. And uh, it is true that he genuinely pursued a general council with the church to resolve these issues. And up until the Council of Trent, which didn't start meeting until about 30 years later, it was the Roman Catholic Church's big response where they tried to take on some of the criticism of the Protestant Reformation, but really were in absolute opposition to it, um, is, is when Luther finally lost all hope, and, and other Protestants as well, that there would never be reform within the church. So that was always the goal of the Protestant Reformation. Right after 1517 and the 95 Theses, in 1518, Luther met with the chief, uh, probably the most brilliant Catholic theologian of the 16th century, Cardinal Cajetan. 
And Luther was excited. He said, finally, I get to debate my concerns with the you know, illustrious. I'm not worthy to be in this man's presence, but I can talk about what I think the word of God says and see what he says. And he went into the first meeting with Cardinal Cajetan and he said, are you ready to recant everything you've ever taught? And Luther said, so that's how it's going to go. And he was deeply disappointed. Um, now, Luther also had conflict with other Protestants. And uh, he, he broke ranks with reformers in other towns in, in Zurich, um, uh, Holdrich Zwingli, and they had a debate over the Lord's Supper. Uh, Luther famously uh, wrote on the table, Hulk est corpus meum, this is my body, the words from the words of institution. And, and because uh, Zwingli had a, a, a symbolic view of the Lord's Supper, uh, which I don't endorse Zwingli's view. I'm in many ways closer to, closer to Luther's view as a Reformed Christian. Um, that started a divide, a rupture within the Protestant ranks, which was a great tragedy. That was 1528. It was never, uh, 1528, 1529, never repaired. And that was tragic. Uh, Luther had deep theological conviction on the issue, uh, but he should have shown at that point, I believe, um, a little bit more flexibility in time to see the concerns of other parties. There were a number of different perspectives to a hotly debated topic. Um, but uh, Luther, uh, you know, throughout wanted honesty and frankness in debate. He didn't want words to be twisted, to have false unity. He wanted true unity in the church, and that's a lesson that we can positively learn from him. Um, if there are any other questions, I've been given free reign. There's a man with a microphone, and uh, Start with your name, please, and be brief. My name is Thomas Hudson. I'm a member of Pillar Church in Washington, D.C. Um, I just got a quick question. Um, a couple of events in recent history, the um, joint uh, um, declaration on the doctrine of justification, and then just last year, the healing of memories. What should be the evangelical or Christian response to these uh, statements by Catholics and popular evangelicals coming together to make these statements? That's an excellent question, and I don't know the healing of differences reference, so I apologize for that one. I, I think the much more newsworthy and noteworthy event is the joint declaration. Um, it is very significant. There have been, as you know, a, a splintering in Protestant ranks, internal to Protestants. There are more uh, conservative and more progressive Lutherans more conservative and progressive uh, Presbyterians and Reformed Christians, Calvinists, and the same is true with Baptists. And so I would say that uh, among the, the ecumenical movement, which has been pursued more vigorously by folks that aren't as concerned about uh, maintaining fidelity to uh, 16th century insights that Luther uncovered about the gospel, there's been a great desire to um, ameliorate those rifts. And the Joint Declaration is one example of that. It's probably the biggest example. The Lutheran World Federation, I believe, is the signatory along with the Roman Catholic Church. And um, frankly, I think they reach a union that is a, a substance at the level of style and words, with uh, a unity at the level of style and words without a unity of substance. So there are a number of critics of those doctrines. I don't have the time in this setting to go into the details, but I think it is, um, wise to approach such discussions of unity uh, with, um, with caution and with rigor, as Luther would approach it, in terms of what is actually being claimed here. Um, I know because I looked in the Catholic Catechism 
in preparing for this, uh, that the Roman Catholic Church still teaches about the plenary indulgence. Now, they've uh, revised after Vatican II in 1967, they've revised this business of tabulating the number of years, which is often kind of, um, as we look back from our perspective of history, seems a little silly to tabulate a million years in purgatory or whatnot. And so they don't talk in those categories anymore. Uh, but we may uh, still, Roman Catholic, faithful Roman Catholics, may still gain indulgences uh, for those departed dead in purgatory. I think if you read Luther, um, you know, at one point he says, if this matter of purgatory is true, this is later in his career, and if the Pope has the keys to the kingdom, why is he not releasing everyone right now? And I think that's a fair question. So I would want to ask that if I were at the table, which I'll never be, in, maybe I will, in that room with people um, finding a unity on this question. How do we have unity with the ongoing teaching of something that was fundamentally um, not supported scripturally by, by Luther and had great concerns for the piety of God's people? A very big topic, obviously, to go into indulgences, but just to say, approach contemporary dialogue. I think it's wonderful. I think it's great that there is dialogue. I support it, but it should be done in the pursuit of truth as much as in the pursuit of unity. Hey, my name is uh, David. Um, and, and something you covered in your conclusion was um, you stated that the, the gospel had been largely obscured, I guess, for the roughly 1,500 years of the, the New Testament era. Was there a path or a sect where the gospel had not been obscured, where it had kind of soldiered on, lived on for the previous 14 centuries or so? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, a number of the reformers in the 16th century would say that the church was a mixed bag. Um, we in America tend to have, we're not very historical in the first sense, but we, we tend to, you know, a lot of American evangelicals have a very foreshortened view of history like the Apostle Paul died maybe there was a guy named Augustine and then you get Luther in the Reformation it's a wonderful thing and that's that's not true in the least bit and the reformers wouldn't have thought that way um, Luther learned a great deal from uh, Staupitz who was his confessor in the Augustinian uh, uh, monastery Augustine was a very vibrant source in the church uh, one of Luther's theses uh, in a different debate, he did 97 theses before he did 95 theses, actually. That's a different lecture. Um, but about a month before the 95 theses, one of Luther's theses is that, you know, Augustine is, is not always... Um, the medieval church had struggled with some of Augustine's more stringent teachings about grace. And they had said, what Augustine is doing is being polemical. He's being hyperbolic. When he talks about grace, when he says that God just forgives sins... He's not really being sincere, he's being hyperbolic. Um, because his opponents were so bad he had to do that. And there were many in the medieval church who didn't buy that line. It was a common line, but there was a lot of division. And then what happened progressively, and I think Luther makes this argument in 1520, where he talks about the, the sacramental life of the church. Uh, we had early in the church two sacraments instituted by Christ. And as the number of sacraments grew and flourished, they tended to obscure the simplicity of the administration of grace through the word of forgiveness. And um, so these sacraments were in many cases established as a source of comfort, but they were, they were man-made rites which weren't grounded in the scriptures and the word of God. And so that was the reformers' great concern with them. 
So it wasn't a thousand years of darkness, 1,200 years of darkness. But I think the thing to remember here um, is that the apostolic church itself, the very first text of scripture in the New Testament that was probably put to paper in the early 50s, about 20 years after Jesus died, uh, maybe 25, was probably Paul's epistle to the Galatians. We have a few quibbles about that, we could debate. Um, but it's a fight about people losing the gospel. And Paul says, if an angel comes down from heaven and denies this gospel, don't listen to him. If I deny this gospel, don't listen to me. And so I think we often think that there was this perfect treasury of faithful teaching in the church that was somehow completely lost or obscured. Well, the treasury is in the scriptures and in the word of God, but the church has always struggled with faithfulness to the word of God. And the great debates in the history of the church, the Trinitarian debates in the, in the third and fourth century, the debates about the deity of Jesus Christ, and then debates in the medieval era as well, and debates in the era of the Reformation over grace and the nature of Scripture and its authority, serve to clarify and strengthen the church's understanding over time. Um, that's my understanding of church history. Not that it was just black and white, there was no gospel preaching whatsoever. And again, Luther and Calvin and others held out hope that this rediscovery of God's Word and a rediscovery of the church fathers could reinvigorate the church. Um, it was not to be at that time. Uh, my name is Steve Mullering. Uh, you had described how Luther's life was punctuated by his crises, spiritual crises. And his theology went through a, a crucible uh, and what he called his onfectory. Uh, do you think that this distinguishes Lutheran theology, not just from Roman Catholic theology, but other Protestant theology, for example, uh, that of Calvin, and that Lutheran theology may, uh, because of Luther's experiences, be characterized as perhaps more existential? I think it's fair to say that contemporary Lutheran theology and confessional Lutheran theology um, bears more than other Protestant theologies uh, the stamp of Luther. And uh, this is because, as I said, and, and this is not by Luther's design, uh, Luther started this movement, quickly flowered out beyond his control. Uh, a lot of people uh, really took off and developed and refined his thought in a healthy way. His student, his key student, his, his uh, lieutenant, Philip Melanchthon, um, was a great systematizer. And in fact, Luther said, let Philip do it. Philip's good at this stuff. Well, 20 or 30 years in, Luther attending to the work of a pastor, very early on, Luther is revered for his role. He has people in his house, it's basically a guest house in Wittenberg, and uh, and Luther's table talk is the recorded words that he said at the table. People would sit there and write down everything Luther said. It was like a contemporary political campaign, right? So we have his table talk, very unrefined reflections on everything. And he had come out of a great deal of angst. And when Melanchthon comes along, he's working side by side with Luther, but still around after Luther dies, Melanchthon who has a, a, a softer spirit 
and a smoother mind and more of a systemizing approach to thinking about God's Word um, really comes quite close to finding common ground with the Reformed tradition that had ruptured with the Lutheran tradition in 1529 at Marburg at the debate there with, with the Zwingli, Zwingli and others. And so there was this debate over the Lord's Supper that, that ruptured the Protestant churches. Part of the Lutherans want to come back and fix the rupture. The Reformed are constantly trying to repair this rupture. They want unity in the Protestant ranks. All through the 16th century, into the 1560s and 70s, this is going on. There is a group, though, within Lutheranism that will not, under any circumstances, uh, reconcile with the broader Reformed tradition, the broader Reformation. And that group goes back to Luther's very words. Goes back to Luther writing in chalk on the table. Hulk as corpus man. Luther said it was so. He said we couldn't make peace with these people. We will never make peace with these people. And so what you see in the Lutheran tradition, far more than other Protestant traditions, is a, a theological development that was, that was radical and it was ramifications. We see over 12 years Luther developed. And even this period that I discussed, we can see the essence of his later teaching but through 1520s and 30s, he's still developing some. But by the 1530s or so, and by the time Luther dies in 1546, he's 62 years old. Uh, probably died early because of his great labors. Um, it's kind of frozen in amber. It's not allowed to develop at all. And the other Protestant traditions develop in and through the 16th century, uh, recording many of their confessional statements in the 1560s. In the early 17th century, if you happen to know any Presbyterians, the Westminster Confession of Faith is the 1640s, 130 years after Luther. And there is a lot of constructive internal debate about understanding the ramifications of what Luther taught. That doesn't really take place in the Lutheran tradition. Um, I'm saying goodnight to my daughter. She's going to bed. Sorry for the wave. Uh, unexplained. Um, and now she's embarrassed and running even faster. But, um, so, so it reflects Luther. And Luther undoubtedly has, has this crisis spirit. Now, Luther gets true joy in life. And Luther gets married in 1525. That's a whole other lecture, right? And, and Luther has a wonderful, earthy spirit. I mean, there's this great line um, about, you know, People look at Luther for these crazy quotes. I was looking up funny quotes of Luther, right? I could go on all night. He says, you know, when you, when you drink beer, you, you tend to get sleepy. And, and you know, when you sleep, you, you don't sin. And if you don't sin, you go to heaven. So let's all drink beer, you know? I mean, that's Luther. And so he was a pretty jolly fellow. And, um, and uh, so, so, yeah, there's a lot of angst to it. Um, but I would say even as a mature Luther expresses it, what he's really getting at is the terror of God's law. And if you want to see that angst in the Bible, look at Exodus chapter 20, uh, when Israel says, you go talk to a Moses, uh, we're going to go over there behind that hill because we're terrified. And, and I think it's not the insanity of Luther, but the sanity of Luther by honestly reckoning with the state of the human soul before a holy God in a way that few in the history of the church have ever bothered to do. It's much easier for us to cover it up and to pretend like it's not true. But Luther says, this is our true state before God. Very bracing stuff. So, time for one more. Uh, my name is Marie. Uh, I have a question. There's a very interesting article in today's post about the uh, creation of the formalized church and all 
Absolutely. What if Luther was around today? What do you think that he might do to help us uh, make things a little bit better in our uh, churches and synagogues? That's an excellent question because I honestly believe um, Luther lived in uh, Christendom. The church and society were one. If you were a citizen, you were a Christian. And um, Luther had a conception for uh, the infidel, uh, the uh, Turk or the Muslim, who there was war going on. Um, he had a conception of the Jew, and uh, it was a good conception for a while, and then it was a not-so-good conception as he grew angry because he thought all the Jews would convert at the end of his career, and he, he wrote a treatise on that that is... Uh, gotten him and, and the tradition in, in much hot water with where Germany ended up on the Jewish question in the 20th century. Um, I think that um, Luther would have taken refuge in the Word of God and in the preaching of the Word of God wherever he could. Um, and I, I think it, it would have been a new problem for him, a problem that he never imagined. He could think of needing to renew or reform or constantly reform the church. Uh, but he would probably say that such a disintegration of the church is, is the um, just or proper fruit for the church getting away from its core mission of preaching the gospel and administering the grace of Christ in the sacraments. That goes back to my first answer. I think the church is the key element of the Protestant Reformation that's really foreign to us today and is worthy of our consideration and reflection. And you point out a, a, an absolute truism that the church is dying. And in 10 or 20 years, our culture uh, will, it is post-Christian now, but it will be post-Christian in other institutional ways that I think even we in this room have a hard time getting our heads around, um, which will make life in the church for those of us uh, who may still be here as Christians in buildings like this when preaching the gospel on Sunday. Um, it makes life in the church much more challenging, much more costly. Now that Luther knew, because Luther lived a life that put him at peril of persecution and death uh, from the age of 34 until his grave at 62 for that last 18 years of his life. So I think he would tell us, like he did in, uh, in that closing prayer, to, to trust to, and that assurance with God that no matter what fires would come, uh, that God would be there with his people. And, um, and I think you'd probably think um, and pray that Jesus would come back quickly. Thank you very much. It's been a privilege to be here.